Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Do You Know Her? Um, I'm your one co-host, Jania, and my other lovely co-host, Javeri, is here. And this week, we're going to be talking about some badass women. So Javeri, who are you doing this week? So this week, I'm going to be talking about Nur Jahan, who's like a badass emperor. Yes, and I'm going to be talking about Ida B. Wells, who is like one of the most amazing women ever in the history of life. So, <laughs> All right, so do you want to go ahead and tell us about Ida B. Wells? Yes. Okay. Um, so I actually had to do like a school project on her a couple months ago, so she's still like really fresh for me. So let's get into it. Okay. Um, Ida B. Wells, she is born uh, July 16th, 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is like this very baby ass town. And they, you know, Mississippi is like the hot, hot, hot bed of racism in the Confederacy. Um, Obviously not an easy time if you live there and you're not white. So her parents died from like some kind of flu or sickness. And she ends up becoming like the main guardian of her siblings when she's 16 years old. So like she's 16 and has to take care of like now she's essentially like the breadwinner of an entire family. So props for that, because I don't know if I could have done it. She went to school at Rust College, which is um, an HBCU in Mississippi. And for those who don't know, an HBCU is a historically black college and university. And those are universities and colleges in the U.S. that were founded specifically for black people to go to school there at a time when like you couldn't legally go to other universities and colleges but she got kicked out because she got into it with like the president of the school so she she was already like not with the shits so she moved to tennessee um in the 1880s and she finished up her education at fisk university which is another hbcu but um in the 1880s so in 1884 what kind of like started her off as like an activist she bought a ticket to be on a train And it was a first class train, but she got kicked off because she was black. And so she basically sued the company and on the local level, at least she won the case. But of course, uh, at the federal level, the ruling got overturned. So that was kind of like her first intro as she was getting into like the train, train car company for unfair treatment. Her friend is uh, lynched and it's someone she knew really well, but like her friend who did get lynched was someone who... They always say when you're a black person and you get killed in these ways, like, you know, they weren't an angel. They, you know, they had a shady past, whatever, which like is not an excuse, obviously, to be lynched. But this guy was like one of those that when white people say, well, if you were just educated or if you were just this or if you were just that, this is who they mean. But like he got killed anyway. He was very well known in the area. He was like a pastor, I believe, at a church. You know, he was he was pretty well to do for the most part, not rich, but not, you know, poor either. A lot of people knew him, but he was killed. And that was that was his I mean, that was her like intro into into like becoming an anti lynching advocate, which is what she gets known for for the rest of her life. So that happens. And after that, she wrote like an expose about it. So we're going to get into the exposés in a little bit. But pretty much she's known for just being an activist against lynching. And she really is like the woman who legitimizes the entire anti-lynching movement in America. Obviously, we know that like those things were still happening like well after she died. But she really brought like 
the issue of lynching as a as an issue into like the national you know arena she's also considered a founding member of the NAACP and she was also a women's suffrage activist so we're going to get deeper into some of the stuff that she wrote so she wrote three things that are like her major claims to fame so the first thing she wrote is called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. And this, let me tell you, she she really like snatched everybody's edges with this because she basically provided these accounts of lynchings across the South, but like she was talking about like accounts of lynching where black people it was mostly black men that she talked about were lynched for allegedly raping white women. And we all know how this goes. Like, you know, mm-hmm a black dude could literally have just like not crossed the street in time or, you know, have looked at a white woman when he wasn't supposed to. And all this in the white woman would just be like, "Ah." or if they were in a relationship, but like the white woman didn't want, you know, to face any consequences for that, then, you know, they would make these false uh, allegations. And so nine times out of 10, these were false allegations that were like later proved to be false by the accusers themselves. That's not to say that, you know, these things, these things happen often, but it was mostly just like in the context of, you know, this kind of thing. So, um, she also discusses, she discusses the systems that allows the perpetrators of these lynchings. So the people who actually are doing the killing, what allows them to not face any consequences. And so she blames the local press, um, local businesses, politicians for like upholding white supremacist stuff. They don't like this. So what they do is they burn down her whole little office where the newspaper is being printed at. They burn that down. And if she had been there, they would have killed her. So luckily she was out of time at the time. But like she basically got exiled from Tennessee because of this. So she could she couldn't ever go back because, you know, her life was always in danger as a result of this first thing. So the second thing she made was something called the red record, which is like when you talk about somebody bringing the receipts she brought receipts. So this was just like an extended version of the first thing she wrote, but it, it was much more expansive. They had much more details and pretty much it denounced lynching, provides stats for like how many lynchings were happening that year in 1893, like by state for which crimes and even had stories of them. And then the last thing is she wrote about uh, an incident in New Orleans that happened where a man named Robert Charles killed a white police officer. And it basically spawned like this week of riots in New Orleans where 28 people, mostly black, were killed and 50 people were wounded. So it was just like this long week of just wild unrest. And she wrote about this as part of uh, like other lynching statistics. So she talked about like prison time, uh, death and acquittal as things that black men faced um, when accused of sexual assault from white women. Acquittal was very, very rare. Most of the time, these black men would be imprisoned or they would be killed. She even gave instances in the Southern Horse thing about white women who had given birth to black babies, which I thought was so funny because some of the stuff she includes in there, she's like, this white woman had a baby and uh, it had dark hair, but she passed it off as having like a relative with dark hair. But then the next baby, she couldn't deny that it was black. Um, Yeah. So it was just like all these like shady accounts that were just funny as hell to read because you would see like the lengths that white women, white women would go to, to try to say that their baby wasn't black. There was also another white lady who like, she got found in her bedroom by her husband with a black dude. 
but her husband was the one who filed the charge, but the guy was actually able to not go to prison because he made furniture and she just told the court he was hanging up curtains in my room. <laughs> so that's an interesting way of putting it, you know. That's, that's that's, yeah, that must be what they're calling it nowadays. But um, some of those accounts were just like, some of them were like, wow, really? And then other ones were just like kind of funny. But again, she's talking about like the complicity of white Christians in uh, and the press holding holding up stereotypes of black people and perpetuating white supremacy, which, you know, the churches get very uncomfortable when you talk about when you talk about like white Christians in America who continue to like engage in racism and don't do anything to stop it and claim to follow this religion where, you know, you're supposed to like essentially be someone engaged in social justice because that's what Jesus did. But they get very uncomfortable when you talk about that. So this is why it wasn't received well. But three years after that, she, uh, through the help of this white guy that she knew who was going around the South, this is when she puts together the red record, which is like all the, all the statistics um, of lynching from 1893. And um, she says that there's three reasons for lynching, you know, like, at first, they tried to say they were lynching black people to prevent race riots. And, you know, but that didn't happen because there was no race riot. You know, it was just like this fear that white people have. And then it was lynching black people to keep them from voting. Then it was lynching black people because they were trying to protect white women's honor. And she really, the one thing I love about her the most is she really like calls out white people on their hypocrisy. Like she's like, they keep they keep trying to say that it's impossible for um, any voluntary social interaction to happen with a white woman and a black man. And that if it happens at all, that they're like being forced into it. And she's like, that's stupid. Like y'all are both people. That's not really how that works, you know? And so she's really like, not just bringing attention to these issues, but like calling out some of the systems and saying like, this doesn't even make sense. Like, so another thing she talks about that's like kind of new for the time is like the differing ideas of like womanhood for black women and white women. So one of the excuses that people who were like pro lynching advocates would say is, well, we're just protecting our white women because, you know, we're so protective of our women down here. We just love our women and we don't want anything to happen to them. And she says, it's interesting that you say that, but like your chivalry is only going towards white women. Like you're not protecting black women who get assaulted by white people or even other black people. Like you literally only care about white women. And so she said, true chivalry shouldn't know your skin complexion or your texture of your hair. Like you should be like that regardless. And so that she, that she's kind of opening like this, this, this door for like what we would call, what we would call feminist thought for black women. Now black feminist thought, she's kind of giving us some early, you know, some early stuff, you know, these competing ideas of womanhood as it relates to white women and black women, or even just white women and non-white women, you know, and who gets to be seen as, you know, worth being protected and not worth being protected. So of course she gets into it. Shock of all shocks. (laughs) Um, Lots of the states that we associate here in America with being like hella racist had some of the highest lynching amounts, you know, like Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, all of these are things we already knew, but it's so jarring. Like when you see these stats in person and some of the stories that she gives. So two of the big stories that she talks about and what I love about her talking about them is that she there's obviously a bunch of like really terrible stories, but she really, 
she really uses the ones that she knows is going to like appeal to people's like, you know, sensibilities and sense of like justice, I guess. So she uses those stories that are like, people would read and be like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Like how could these, these, these Southern animals, you know, like she's really smart about what she uses in this, in this book. She talks about a story of a family who a husband, his pregnant wife, his son and his baby were all shot and killed over a debt dispute with a white man in town. And the son was actually killed after he tried to tell people what had happened with the shooting. He was the last person to be killed. And then she talks about another story of um, of a black guy who was arrested for murdering a four-year-old white girl. He didn't do it, but everyone thought he did. And pretty much what happened is the entire town like turned on this guy and they all came to watch him essentially be tortured to death, like, you know, being burned and branded and set his body was set on fire. And like thousands of people came to the spot to watch him be killed. And they took souvenirs, like quote unquote souvenirs, like took pieces of his clothes, parts of his body. Like it was just, it was disgusting. And the fact that she included it, you know, she's trying to say that the the act of lynching a person is not something that's strictly limited to just these isolated incidents. Like these are things that whole communities participate in. So she's really like calling them out. Aside from that, she also was part of the women's suffrage movement in the US. And she had a little, you know, little conflict going on. So they, I love a bit of conflict. I love it. So what she did was she called Frances Willard to the carpet. So Frances Willard is this white woman who runs the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was supposed to be this thing that, you know, we need to ban alcohol because it'll stop, you know, men from abusing their wives, blah, 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 which is a noble sentiment, except Frances Willard was also a racist, like very, like super, super, super racist. So this is what this, these are, you know, some of the things that, that Frances Willard, you know, said, she said, it's not fair in reference to black people. It's not fair that they should vote. Uh, nor is it fair that a plantation Negro who can neither read nor write should be entrusted with the ballot. The colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. The grog shop, which is a bar, is its center of power. The safety of woman, of childhood, of the home is menaced in a thousand localities at this moment. So she's using, Frances Willard was using this language that lots of white people use, which is that, you know, Black people are, they shouldn't be able to vote because they can't even read or write. They're so stupid. They only ever get drunk and they're a threat to our safety because thousands of cities are, you know, threatened at this moment. Like very, it's a lot like what a lot of like conservatives today try to say about immigrants and people who come and seek asylum. Like, oh, they're coming in swarms. They're going to ruin our lives. Like all this stuff. And Ida B. Wells calls her out on it. And she says, look, white women are a large part of like racism in America. And so Frances Willard doesn't like that. So what she says is the statements Miss Wells makes concerning white women having taken the initiative in nameless acts between the races has put an imputation on half the white race in this country and it is just without foundation. So she's saying that's not true. White women, we didn't have anything to do with those people getting killed. But of course it's like, girl, come on. Like this is a very like white feminist mainstream approach to only be concerned about what's going on with white women and not, you know, how, how these issues affect other women. So of course my good sis Ida Wells was not playing around. She was like, okay, girl, I see you, but let me, let me tell you where you got me fucked up. This is where she, this is what she tells her. 
She says, colored men have been lynched for assault upon women when the facts were plain that the relationship between the victim lynched and the alleged victim of his assault was voluntary, clandestine, or illicit. Then the question was asked, what great moral reformers like Miss Frances Willard have done to suppress lynch law? I answer nothing. So I'm just like an expose girl, like get her, let her know. That's let basically me. like, yeah, okay, whatevs, drop the mic. Yeah, kind of total, funny. yes, total mic drop moment. And so she, if I'm not mistaken, she was in DC for like a women's march and, um, she was told that because she was black, she would have to march at the back, that she wasn't allowed to march at the front. So she's like, girl, no, like I did not travel all the way up to DC to march in the back, girl. Like we were talking about women's rights and that includes y'all not being racist assholes. So she found two of her friends who were white, who were marching up front and she got in between them and marched with them. And that was that. And they just had to be mad about it. Just like, it's so timely. It's so timely, you know, like, like reading so much of her stuff and seeing like stuff about her really just makes it click that like these things are far away historically, but not that far away at the same time. You know, like the stuff that she was fighting against all this, it's so timely. Ugh, okay. Uh, yeah. I was going to say like, what strikes me about when you're speaking about it is how relevant those arguments are in a way. Like it's, it's the same thing that we're hearing today with the same issues Absolutely. Absolutely. And so she also uh, helps to found the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. But this is this is some drama. So there's another black woman uh, named Mary Church Terrell, who is um, also kind of an important figure in black feminist thought. But Miss Church Terrell was allegedly jealous of like Ida B. Wells popularity. So even though Ida B. Wells helped to found this association, she wasn't allowed to participate in the meeting in Chicago when they came to Chicago where she was living at because Miss Church Terrell, who was president, you know, she didn't really fuck with her like that, which is like, girl, come on. Like, really, let's let's not do this. Let's not do this. But regardless, whatever. Um, in 1909, she helped to found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which most people know as the NAACP. The interesting thing about this is that there are other Black men who helped to found this organization too, but Ida B. Wells, despite being one of the founders, is not ever listed as an official, like, like on paper kind of founder, which is kind of fucked up because she's she stays getting like the short end of the stick, but she keeps... She keeps going. So she keeps uh, being an activist for women's suffrage. She tries to participate in like urban reform because now she's living in Chicago and like that's kind of a big deal. Um, she ran for the Illinois Senate as an independent in 1930 and she lost, but she only came in like second or third place. So it wasn't like it wasn't like a totally terrible loss because she definitely did have like a little bit of traction. She has started writing her autobiography, which is called Crusade for Justice in 1928, but she died of kidney failure in 1931 before she could finish it. So one of her daughters actually finished it for her. That's Ida B. Wells. Like she doesn't really get um, nearly as much shine as she should, especially when we're talking about like, you know, civil rights people and black history in America. And she she's someone that some people know but like not a lot of people know she definitely doesn't have like that same you know if i say martin luther king or malcolm x or rosa parks or harriet tubman you know who i'm talking about right yeah. like she needs to be way 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 more well known than she is because 
Like the stuff she wrote, she literally risked her life. Like was literally told, we will kill you if you come back to Tennessee. And she kept doing, you know, she kept doing it. And she got lots of threats even for calling out um, Frances Willard because, you know, Frances Willard was a white woman and she was challenging her on, you know, the participation of white women in upholding white supremacy, which gets overlooked in America quite a bit. White women get away with a lot in this country. And it's mostly because they are seen as being worth defending, worth protecting. And it's not to say that women are not being, you know, worth def- worth defending or worth protecting, but white women have a very unique place in their participation of like continued oppression of other groups. Considering that this is like the late 1800s that Ida B. Wells is saying this, like this is, this is revolutionary, right? Like I think, I think now, I think now a good bit of white people accept that they have white privilege and that they are afforded a unique vantage point in society and that they there is a, a certain amount of issues and problems that they will never have to face purely because they are white. But this is something that back in the late 1800s, this is not something that was a very widely, you know, disseminated idea. Yeah. And she really is just, Ida B. Wells is just fire. Like, where's her biopic? Where's her biopic? That's what I want to know. Yeah, start casting it. Where is her biopic? And like, I've been looking at her trying to figure out who could play her because, you know, she has a very, like, she has a very unique face. And she's one of those people that I feel like whoever plays her, it has to be somebody who looks like her, like who looks very close to her. And yeah, and also like the guy she married. So um, her name, her name was Ida... Ida Barnett, I believe, or Ida B. Wells Barnett. So her last name was Wells, but the guy she marries is a lawyer. And um, his his last name is Barnett. But like, even though she had kids, you know, by the time she was getting into the women's suffrage movement, she already had kids. So she was still out here grinding, even with her kids, you know, like granted, she wasn't writing as much as she used to. But she really was still trying to be out here. And so I just think about what that must have been like, you know, during that time where women are just expected to just be at home and raise their kids and not do anything. And, you know, if you're a black woman, obviously it's a little different because you're kind of expected to like hold your entire family on your back. And she's like, I'm going to do that girl. And I'm going to challenge these white women out here. And I'm going to be marching for, you know, women's suffrage and I'm going to run for state Congress and I might not win, but I still did it anyway. So just, she has such an interesting life and I wish more people knew who she was because she deserves all the things the things nice it sounds like she took on a lot yeah she definitely took on a lot she definitely risked a lot and you know she was pretty young when she died you know she was 69 years old and I I just think you know she dies in 1932 I believe but I always wonder you know like she's 69 right so 20 years up from that 1952 she would have been 89 and it's not a stretch that she could have lived that long, but just seeing, just thinking about how much she would have seen at that point, you know, like kind of the civil rights movement kicking off and she's just awesome. She's so, she's so amazing. Y'all, if, if you want to go and read, um, the red record and Southern horrors, you can pay for them on Amazon if you want, but there's like so many places online you can find and read them for free. They're not long at all. Southern horrors, I think is maybe 10 to 12 pages. It's not hard to read at all. The red record is a little bit longer, but there's all these different like accounts and, you know, stories and things in there that make it really interesting. And 
it's really like haunting. Like there were times where I had to stop and take a break from reading because I was just getting so pissed off. Like, oh, I was so glad I read it on the weekend because I was like, I can't go outside in the world to see white people right now. I'm too angry. Like I need, <laughs> I was angry. Um, but some of the other books you guys can read about her, if you want to also read stuff people have written about her, um, you can read a book by James Davidson called Ida B. Wells and the Reconstruction of Race. Uh, you guys can go and um, read a book by David Squires called Outlawry, uh, Ida B. Wells and Lynch Law. Actually, I think that's an article, but you guys can go and read this. Please read everything you can about this woman. And, you know, when we say that black women have been, you know, on the front lines of the civil rights movement and other movements as far as like, you know, ending racism and, you know, gen gender inequality and that kind of stuff. We've been here. This is not a new thing. Like we've been here. We've been risking our lives, risking our own sanity and health and big ups to this woman. I, I'm, I'm, I need a biopic ASAP. We need it. So the woman in history that I'm discussing this week is Noor Jahan. To say that this is wild is an understatement, but I'm going to try my best. Let me, let me buckle up. Yeah, buckle up, buckle up. So she was born in May 1577. Basically, she was born into like Persian nobility, but by the time that she was born, her parents' fortunes weren't that great. So they were like, okay, let's relocate. And her mum is pregnant at the time. So about halfway through the journey, so her mum, her dad, and two of her brothers, they're attacked by robbers on their way. And the mum ends up giving birth in Kandahar, which is in Afghanistan. And because their situation with the money wasn't that great, they were scared that you know they're gonna have to give their daughter away or something because they couldn't afford to look after her but then a rich merchant he kind of took them in he looked after them so then they ended up naming her Mehran Nisa so that kind of translates to son among women because son among women because they thought that her being born kind of switched their fortunes it made their life better mm -hmm. so her dad he works his way upwards so he gets appointed treasurer of Kabul at the time he rises through the ranks and he's able to give her a really good education for the time considering it's the late 1500s so she's like skilled in Arabic she could speak Persian and she had like an education that actually acknowledged art literature music dance and basically everyone just says at the time that she's you know super talented so at 17 she gets married to Sher Afghan who was like a Turkish soldier he served in Emperor Akbar's army and the current Emperor, Emperor Jahangir's army. This is where it starts getting a bit funny. So he gets killed some point between 1607 and 1610. We're not actually sure on the dates. There's a bit of messiness going on. So I think the official story is that because of anti-state activities, he gets killed. But there's like another rumour going on that Jahangir, who's the emperor, had him killed because he fancied his wife. Oh, so Jahangir fancied Mehranissa and he wanted her in his harem. The husband was like, no way, matey. But again, that was kind of theories being set aside some because the dates don't quite match. So in 1605, Emperor Akbar dies. So that's Jahangir's dad. And Nur Jahan, well, she's not called Nur Jahan yet, Mehranissa and her daughter are told to come to court for their own protection. And they're appointed as ladies in waiting for Jahangir's stepmother, Rukia Sultan Begum. And it's better for her because her husband had political enemies at this time. And obviously, her husband ended up getting killed by these political enemies. So it was a good call. And she's like expecting the worst at this point. But 
being in that court really helped to keep her safe. And it said that Rukia, who was the stepmother, like kind of Rukia, cared for her a lot. And she was in her court for about four years. With New Jahan and Jahangir, it's kind of a lot of kind of sensationalism that's going on. So there's a famous story about Jahangir and Anarkali, who was like a woman that he was supposedly in love with, but his dad didn't let him be with her. And there's like a lot of kind of arts and culture and stuff about Anarkali in this tragic love story, but we're not actually sure if she actually existed or what it was. And people believe that Nur Jahan was that Anarkali, that she kind of waited until the emperor died and then came back because then she'd be able to marry him. But again, that's not really a theory that's widely subscribed to at the moment. So in 1611, she's going shopping with Empress Rukia and she meets Jahangir, who's the emperor at this point, and they're shopping in preparation for the festival that celebrates the new year. And Jahangir proposes, and they get married, and you're going to love this fact. She's wife, possibly wife number 20. What? So, 20, yeah, two zero. What the hell? I mean, we don't actually know because like the number variates a lot. We don't actually know how many wives Jahangir ended up having, but she was his last legally cleared wife. So were the others, like, illegal wives or something? Um, we do actually, because, like, some of them he married for a bit, but a lot of them were, like, political matches. Like, if he marries this girl, he gets access to her dad's lands or whatever else. So then that's kind of maybe what was going on. And we don't actually know how many kids they ended up having, if they ended up having any kids, because Jahangir had at least 15. Oh, God. Surprising, considering how many wives he had. But, um... And what people end up doing was like misattributing the mothers of these kids. So like they'd say, oh, this wife was the mother of that kid. But that's not actually true. Her mother, his mother was someone else. So basically, if you're competing against that many people and you're in a massive court, what are you going to do? You're going to make connections, aren't you? And try to buy yourself some influence. And the thing about Jahangir was he was pretty much a weak emperor. Like he was heavily addicted to alcohol and opium. So he wasn't quite all there. So Nur Jahan makes her manoeuvres, there's like two marriages that she makes in the court. So she gets her daughter to marry Jahangir's youngest son. So that's her daughter from her previous marriage, to marry Jahangir's youngest son. And she gets her niece married to Jahangir's third son. And kind of a little historical tidbit. So that niece ends up becoming named Mumtaz Mahal. And that son would be Shah Jahan. And Shah Jahan, he built the Taj Mahal. So it was her niece that the Taj Mahal was kind of like built for and dedicated to. Yeah. So she ended up having influence for at least like another generation, even after her time. Wow. So, yeah. And she also, um, what she does is she adopts Shah Jahan. So that's the third prince and Mumtaz Mahal's second son. So that gives her like a bit of responsibility as well, because that kid was a favorite of his grandfather and it's kind of like a sign of how much clout that she has in the court, basically, that she's able to like adopt this grandchild of her husband. And she's she's badass doesn't even begin to describe it. Like obviously she had this like great education, she was really intelligent. And they said that she was like a really physically active woman as well. Like she'd get in there with like hunting and things that royal people do that us commoners wouldn't know about. I love There's it. like a poetry verse. There's a poetry verse that's been written about her. It's um, it says, so it's like a couplet, it's Though Nur Jahan be in form a woman in the ranks of men, she's a tiger slayer and apparently that was written after she killed four tigers with six bullets after she went hunting with her husband. 
Um, not that we're condoning hunting or animal cruelty in any way, but that's the kind of woman that we're discussing today. Like, mm-hmm. badass. She faced up four tigers. What have you done today? So tension kind of starts building with Shah Jahan because he's like, he's starting to resent that this woman's come in and she's got so much influence. Like, literally, like, it was unheard of at that time for the coins like to feature a woman and she was featured on the coinage so then he'd have to see her face on the coins and everything and he's like really not liking this so because her husband is not all there she's kind of having a lot of influence in the court and that kind of goes ahead to kind of military orders as well so there was like this one issue where the Persians rocked up in Kandahar and she's telling this prince that doesn't like her, yo, march over there and do something about it. But he holds out and he says no. But then because he said no, they lost Kandahar to the Persians after like a 45-day siege and battle. Oh my. So he screwed up there by not listening to his stepmom. And then he starts getting scared that, the, okay, she's going to turn my dad against me and he's going to name someone else as the heir because at this point he hadn't named an heir to the throne. It's kind of like a bit of a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. So he ends up rebelling against his dad, trying to secure his place. So instead of fighting the Persians, who have taken a bit of the kingdom, he's fighting his dad's forces instead. So he raises an army to go against his dad and Nur Jahan in 1622. And the royal forces kind of, you know, slap that down like, yo, what do you think you're doing? And he has to surrender. Mm-hmm. And he's publicly forgiven for it. But it's still like that tension. It's the type of tension that doesn't go away. It's like, yo, remember that time that you tried to rise against me and your dad? So he, there's like, it just, it gets even messier, if you can believe it. So again, it is a bit of a free-for-all because he's not named an heir. And I think with Jahangir's situation, when he succeeded the throne, it was the same kind of thing where he kind of just went for it against I think it was five brothers that you went up against and obviously with an empire like this there's going to be like you know other people trying it as well so it's not enough for his step for his son to kind of go for it but she does as well so what happens is okay so in 1626 that's four years after this rebellion Jahangir gets captured by some rebels because he's making his way over to Kashmir and the rebel he's trying to get power for himself and Nur Jahan she kind of rocks up to herself in person to rescue her husband like there's like a, an account not sure how accurate it is that she went into battle herself and she led like a unit of soldiers but she was like on top of a war elephant so literally like here's a load of soldiers and here comes the elephant and there's the queen on top of it like trying to rescue her own husband so but she lost that battle and she had to surrender and she was placed in captivity with her husband oh yes yeah I know, it happens. But she was able to escape and they get away and it's fine. But then just over a year later, so 1627 now, Jahangir dies and he hadn't named an heir after all and there's a lot of beef going on. So Shah Jahan, he really wants a position considering he rebelled against his dad just a few years ago and he's up against his brothers. So he had a brother who was blind and killed in an uprising anyway. He had a brother who was weak and addicted to alcohol and then that left Nur Jahan's favourite Shahriyar and that leaves Shah Jahan himself and Nur Jahan, she kind of sides obviously she's going to side with her favourite. She thinks yeah okay I can kind of nudge him to make decisions that are good for me and it looked like they were going to win but then 
she gets betrayed by her own brother because of jealous. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to side with Shah Jahan. Men. Ugh. Men. Even your own brother. You can't trust your, your own brother. Like, brother. Your own brother. The disrespect. Yeah, so then- yeah, so Shah Jahan wins in 1628. He declares himself the emperor and he goes on. So she spends the rest of her life, so it's about 16, 17 years. Um, it's pretty comfortable, actually. Like, he puts her up in a mansion. She gets, like, an annual kind of pension that comes in. Mm-hmm. And she kind of, like, oversees some projects for herself. So, like, she built, like, a mausoleum for her dad. And that mausoleum kind of inspired the Taj Mahal later on. So she must have heard about... So with the timings of what happened when the Taj Mahal was built, she must have heard about it somehow. And she died in 1645. She was 68 years old. And she is buried in Lahore, which is a city in Pakistan. And she's actually buried in a place called Shahjan. That's where some of my relatives live. So I'm like... I've been to her tomb and Jahangir's tomb because it's like a tourist attraction. Um, so on her tomb, they've inscribed, on the grave of this poor stranger, let there be neither lamp nor rose, let neither butterfly's wing burn nor nightingale sing. And her tomb is really close to her husband's and it's like, a, it, like I said, it's a tourist attraction. There's like gardens and everything. And the thing why, so why I picked Nur Jahan was she's defined usually as, you know, for her love life with a husband and like you know having a first husband killed because he might not have let her be in a harem or anything like that but she did so much in her own right like she did an entire battle she went up against her stepson a few times and she was just an amazing woman and again it plays into the whole reason why we do this podcast is men and what they say about women like as their contemporaries and then later on in history like the things that were said about her, like I think there's some sort of envoy from James the First, like came to visit Jahangir's court, and he ran his mouth a bit, and he's like, oh, he calls her the goddess of heathen impiety. So you know, don't know what his issue was. He clearly was upset. Yeah, he was upset about something or other, and she's just like constantly defined by her love life, but they don't talk about her, you know, what she actually does and that's just it just frustrates me because she's got such a intense story in her own right as a woman just like a very rich a very rich life that's like just filled with a lot of stuff and somehow no one like really knows well i mean people know obviously but like people who she should be more well known than she is right now yeah i mean she should should be more known for like how she lived not like you know what the men in her life thought of her it just really annoys me sometimes because it's just, yeah, like she's like a huge patron of the arts as well and things like that. And like, how unheard of it was it to have queens even at that time to have queens on the coins on any nation, but she managed to. So it's just, yeah, it's just one of those where it's like, come on, there's so much to talk about, so much you could focus on instead of her love life, but it happens. But that's why we've got, you know, podcasts like this where we can talk about women and what they should actually be known for big facts big facts biggest facts of all yes so so that was this week's episode um next week's episode next week lol (laughs) our next episode we are going to be doing mary queen of scots right that's our focus 
Yes. So to tie in with the film that's coming out. Yes, I'm really excited about that because I don't know really much about either one of them. (laughs) It's about Mary, Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know much about either of those. I think the only thing I know about Elizabeth I is that she ruled for like a while, I think. Yeah, and I went through like a massive obsessive phase about her like back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I'm... (laughs) I I don't know anything. So I'm looking forward to doing that because I'm I'm like ready to learn more about them and just see. But that's gonna be our next one. And we really encourage you guys to go on iTunes, make sure you guys leave us a review when you listen, let us know what we can be doing to be better. Make sure you guys follow us on Twitter um at do you know underscore pod and send us your stories please we want to hear about the women in your hometown or your state who have done amazing things that you feel like we should know more about and if you send them to us we will read them out here on the show and we are looking forward to seeing you guys next episode